I'm Catherine Knox. I'm a programme manager at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation working on climate change issues for the organisation and um, I've worked here for about 10 years now looking at different aspects of, of concern in the UK linked to poverty and disadvantage affecting different places, so um, housing, regeneration, other issues like that in the past. But since 2009 I've been managing the organisation's work on climate change and social justice. Um, which has been looking at the social impact of climate change in the UK, who might be vulnerable, which people and places might be of concern, and then thinking about the equity of mitigation and adaptation responses. So from, from the experience and observation during the, 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 the recent floods <coughs> and from your report, who, who can we say um, um, are, the, are most likely to be impacted and affected by climate change? I think there's going to be impact in many ways across uh, the country. We're looking at the UK in particular rather than internationally and obviously there are different issues that might apply um, internationally from in the UK but um, what we've been thinking about is the sort of multi-dimensional nature of vulnerability and so if we think about flooding specifically it's easy just to focus on well, who lives in the floodplain areas but not to think about the nature of how people's well-being might be affected by um, the impacts and what JRF research has has suggested is there are particular factors that may make people more vulnerable and affect their well-being more. So um, there are some personal factors. So if you're very old or very young, you might struggle um, for particular reasons and mobility and dependency on others might be an issue. Um, if you're in a care situation, obviously you're, you're dependent on the institution to support you in the context of a, a problem. Um, but there are also other factors. So if we think about the environmental factors, it's not just a case of whether you live in a floodplain, but also the nature of the built environment and natural environment around you. So if you're in a basement flat, you're obviously going to be worse off than someone who's in a high-rise flat in terms of the impact it might have upon you. Um, and then there are questions about whether there are green spaces or blue spaces that might kind of absorb water within your sort of environmental surrounds, which might make a big difference in terms of flood impact. Um, and then if we think about the social factors, which perhaps the least well thought about at the moment, there are a range of things. So we know that, um, for instance, people on low incomes are much less likely to take up flood insurance. And so they might be particularly affected, not only because um, they are affected in terms of loss of their possessions, but because they have less ability then to recover from those problems because they don't have insurance to support them and they have less safety nets. And some of the other social concerns would be things like people's social networks. And if you're isolated, that you might be particularly at risk and more vulnerable. Whereas if you've got social networks, obviously you've got some people who can support you in the context of, of a crisis and help you recover from the event. So we think vulnerability relates to people's ability to prepare for a flooding and to respond and recover, as well as some of those other things that might be more familiar in terms of thinking about um, the impact. And in, in that context, for, for poorer communities, what does resilience to climate change look like? So I think it's, um, it's something that's not really very well understood at the moment, and actually it's the focus of, of work that we'll be taking forward more in the next phase of our research here. But um, we do think that there's a, a question of understanding how the social context and social fabric works in an area. So... Um, Social links might be really important in terms of people's ability to then get support from each other as well as thinking about some of the other provisions in place. And we've been doing some work in York in an area called New Earswick, which was initially first developed by Roundtree um, to 
provide housing to some of the workers in his factory. And over the years, it's a, an area that's grown and new housing has come on stream. But it remains a predominantly low-income um, social housing area. And we've been trying to work with people about some of the issues. But what we found was that to awaken people's interest in terms of what might be going on, and this was in an area where there's not a context of a threat from flooding or anything particular that's happening at this point in time, um, people need to be kind of connected through their local interests into sort of wider questions about sustainability and climate change. So the issue there was about tapping into local interest in nature and, and the natural environment. So there, there are lots of fruit trees that have been put in people's gardens in these areas, which are actually not really well used. And so one of the sort of activities that was done with the community was to support fruit picking and get people working together in the natural environment. And, and there were sort of big initiatives to support tree planting and um, other activities in, in the environment that brought people together who didn't necessarily know each other previously. Um, the um, people we worked with were also very actively working in the schools, in school in the area to support um, school children to start thinking about these issues. And those things that sort of connect into people's wider activities were really important in terms of getting people to start making links. So we think that might be a really important part of resilience to climate change, but again, is is not something that necessarily would be a focus, um, and it might need to take. It sounds like research that very much um, <clears throat> supports and uh, 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 validates the approach that transition groups have been taking indeed. for the last few years. Yes, indeed. Um, I, yeah, in a context where uh, there wasn't a particularly uh, live transition group in that area, so but trying to support similar ideas, I think. Mm. Um, there were, one of the things that was in the report you've published recently where you talked about the triple injustice where yeah. uh, people on low incomes pay more and benefit less from certain policy responses, especially energy bills, uh, and are those responsible for the least emissions. In, yeah. in, in, that, in the context of that observation, was the government right recently to cut back on what they called green taxes, saying that they were socially regressive? I think there's, there's lots, that raises lots of questions, actually, because I think the general position here at JRF is we recognise that we need to have a transition to deal with the consequences of climate change, and therefore we do need to provide some funding to make change happen. I think what's, what's happened is that some of the, the monies that are being raised to make that transition to a low-carbon economy are being applied through people's energy bills rather than perhaps through general taxation. So as a general principle... It's more regressive to be putting costs on through energy bills um, for paying for things through taxation. That's because low-income households pay proportionately more of their uh, income towards energy bills than people on higher incomes. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to take the steps to make the transition happen and indeed fund them. So I think you know there are questions about how you pay for things, and that can be done in, in different ways. Um, and what's, what's obviously interesting as well is, you know, what are the different measures that are being put on people's energy bills? And there are a range of different things that are being applied. And actually, some of the um, some of the taxes that are being collected, all the kind of levies that are being put, put through, are actually being applied to fund measures that many people will benefit from, and others are being applied and will only benefit 
um, perhaps a small number of people and people on higher income. So it's perhaps some of the other measures that have been cost and applied that are more aggressive um, than some of the things that are being questioned now. Is it, is it possible to to suggest whether the current austerity program is helping or hindering uh, poorer communities' resilience to climate change? In terms of the changes to welfare, you mean? Yeah, and the sort of and, and, and the cuts in public services. Yeah, I think in general, you know, JRF work is indicating lots of problems with you know some of the emerging picture on that side and we are concerned about how people's incomes are being reduced in general in a, such a way that will also affect their ability to deal with things like their fuel bills so I think it, there is a, a wider problem really um, we perhaps haven't looked at the detail about how those things <clears throat> connect in terms of austerity and the links to climate change but I think in, in general you know what you're going to find is that people's ability to deal with a wide range of challenges that they face is, is being affected, so economic and social questions as well as environmental questions. In one of the reports, you, 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 you pick up on, on neighbourhood plans and argue that, that neighbourhood plans are a good route for, for, for looking at this. Could you say a little bit more about that? I think that's an emerging area and it's not something we've done a lot of work on here, but I think <clears throat> there is scope to see how people at a local level can engage with these questions through neighbourhood planning. It's a new opportunity, really, um, to kind of make a, make a difference on a very small spatial scale where people can start connecting with big planning questions which will affect their area. And so I think things like the opportunity to think about community energy schemes um, are really live in that context. And it will, you know, there'll be other questions maybe about affordable housing and other needs for the area, but it's, it is an opportunity, and I think it's it's still an emergent area in terms of how far climate change questions can be considered. Uh, and again, there might be questions about things like areas that have been hit by flooding, being concerned about what can be done on that. And and I think one of the issues will be that the solutions may not be all possibly able to be delivered at the neighbourhood scale but need actions higher up and so then the question will be how does the neighbourhood plan connect into other local government planning processes or indeed wider processes to try and address uh, neighbourhood needs and that, that, that is perhaps more complicated to see what, what difference can be made where maybe more sub-regional solutions or, or whatever are needed. Mm. And um, what's what's your sense about the the balance between uh, adaptation and mitigation? In terms of what's required? In terms of climate change? Yeah, climate. well, I think clearly there's a question about the need to mitigate as the, the first priority to, to reduce emissions. Um, what's concerning is that the scientists are basically suggesting we need to peak our emissions within the next 10 plus years and there's not a huge window of opportunity to peak global emissions now um, so there's really big questions about what we can deliver with international agreements um, and then how those play out down at, at different national scales and, and um, within countries and I suppose the question then becomes well how are we going to uh, adapt as well as we know already there's so many emissions within the atmosphere that we're going to have the consequences of, of those emissions in terms of uh, climate change already happening, and we've already seen 
the devastating floods that we've had uh, recently here, even though the attribution is difficult in terms of climate change, we can expect to see more frequent flooding. So we are going to have to adapt. And I think there are really big questions about, um, you know, how we're going to protect different communities, who has voice in decisions that are going to be made, um, what resourcing is going to be put in, which are getting a bit more focused now than perhaps has been in the past, but are really important questions nationally. Um, I think there are real issues there about, for instance, some smaller or rural or coastal communities and, and how they will be protected in the future. And um, uh, so the the theme that we that, that we we talked about looking at this month is living with climate change. What's your sense of uh, if uh, if we carry on as we are at the moment, what living with climate change will mean for the poorest in the UK in fifteen or twenty years' time, and what it would mean if we were able to really grapple with it and engage it? What what are the two sort of potential outcomes we could end up at? Do you think? Well, I think, you know, some of our work already indicates that the poorest and most income households, most disadvantaged groups, are already likely to be among those worst hit, both from climate impacts themselves, but also the consequences of policy responses, as, as indicated in our energy work. So um, there are really potentially very negative outcomes unless action is taken. So the, the alternative, I guess, is to, to be trying to make... Um, to, to try and engage people now um, and use kind of processes that we have, whether that's neighbourhood planning or community action through transition groups and other opportunities to try and galvanise people to understand what the implications might be um, and try and engage them in developing responses. But I think that's not just an issue for disadvantaged communities, that's a national issue which really needs attention from central government and from different stakeholders and you know local government and others too um, rather than just being an issue for disadvantaged groups uh, and the, the last question was about was um, certainly from a transition perspective having been looking at this for for quite a while now our, our, our conclusion is that uh, that one of the things that is um, that is key to building resilience in this way is is looking at local economies and uh, trying to stimulate local economies that are more resilient in terms of you know more more localized economies and uh, and that communities take the drive in starting that up and getting that moving, which we're with the economy work we're doing and and so on is is a big part of it. To what extent do you think that that approach of uh, more local economies trying to localise production where possible could have a role to play in, in building community resilience? I think it's a very valid question and, and you know, be really interested to see how um, the learning from the transition movement can help us in that. I think there's a, um, there is a wider debate at the moment about the need for more sustainable prosperity, the question of kind of how growth um, creates prosperity or what the limits are to the current economic model nationally. And so it sort of relates to some of those questions. Um, and I think there, there are, are opportunities to have a more of an asset-based approach locally where we think about what skills and opportunities exist within an area and how those can support local economic development. So I think that's a, a really interesting area. And uh, one that just came to mind, so if, if you had the year of... 
of uh, of the current government would there be two or three things that you would recommend them to do in terms of uh, helping low-income communities to build more resilience to climate change what would be the the best places to start do you think well, i think there's uh something about looking at what the impacts are more effectively so our work's highlighted where we think some of the most disadvantaged communities might be across the uk in relation to both flood and heat um but i'm not aware that this kind of thinking is really being taken up nationally in terms of thinking about preparedness and how we respond and how we prioritise responses. So there's there's not enough of a fine-grained thinking about which people and places we need to support most effectively, really. I think there's more of a kind of general approach being taken. So I would suggest, first of all, we need to have a better understanding of vulnerability and, and think about how that might inform what we do, and that's the vulnerability to the direct effects of climate change. I think... Um, Secondly, we need to look at the, the kind of current policy position and, and trying to create a more fair policy approach. So what tends to happen is that policies aren't really considered in terms of their distributional impacts very, very effectively. So if you look at the energy policies, what should be happening when they're being put in place is that there's a proper understanding of how those policies will impact on different types of households and where we know they're going to be possibly negative impacts on particular groups, there should be steps taken to prevent that or remediate it in some way or to design policy differently so that those things aren't so regressive. And then I think thirdly there's um, something about a process of engagement and trying to bring people's voice into this discussion. So I don't think at the moment there's enough communication from centre to, um, to communities themselves to actually understand people's views and try and take, um, well, and try and bring people on a journey of understanding collectively as to what climate change might mean for them and then what the opportunities are for action. And so some of that action needs to be driven from communities themselves. But there needs to be more of a kind of dialogue, really, from central government down through local governments and other organisations and the voluntary sector to make those links and to start saying, what can we do? What, what are we going to do? Whether the impacts may be really acute. Mm. 